Hard attack on rack and flop two with mystery in the alley. Burn the British. What? Can a guy have a side gig at Waffle House? Dub up. Your smoke in my hair. Hot and dirty like the LA air. That face, baby, it ain't fair. But you don't know, what you don't know, what you don't know. Ooh, so you wanna talk about power? applied to run in the Boston Marathon in 1966, they rejected her saying, women are not physiologically able to run a marathon and we can't take the liability. Then, exactly 50 years ago on the day of the marathon, Bobby Gibbs hid in the bushes and waited for the race to begin. When about half the runners had gone past, she jumped in. She wore her brother's Bermuda shorts, a pair of boy sneakers, a bathing suit, and a swimsuit. As she took off into a swarm of runners, Gibbs started to feel overheated, but she didn't remove her hoodie. I knew if they saw me, they were going to try to stop me, she said. I even thought I might get arrested. But it didn't take long for the male runners in Gibbs' vicinity to realize that she was not another man. Gibbs expected them to shoulder her off the road or call out to the police. Instead, other runners told her that if anyone tried to interfere with her race, they would put a stop to it. Finally, feeling secure and assured, Gibbs took off her sweatshirt. As soon as it became clear that there was a woman running in the marathon, the crowd erupted, not with anger or righteousness, but with pure joy. Men cheered and women cried. By the time she reached Wellesley College, the news of her run spread, and the female students were waiting for her, jumping and screaming. The governor of Massachusetts met her at the finish line and shook her hand. The first woman to ever run 
the Boston Marathon, had finished in the top third. Poppy Gibbs breaks the glass ceiling. She wanted to run a race. Rosa Parks wanted to keep her bus seat. Sandra Morgan wanted to lead the Raiders, and Kamala Harris became vice president. Many women before them and many women to follow will fight for their equality. I see equality as a God-given right that should be graced upon any human being as their inheritance at birth. Equality should never be a condition of gender, skin color, sexual preference, religious beliefs, nationality, or political affiliation. Today is the 16th of July, 2022, and from the Plush Anchor Studios, powered by Spotify, you're listening to Modern Problems, the podcast. I'm Johnny Benson. In 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected as the 16th President of the United States. He wanted to end slavery. Several southern states didn't like the outcome of the election and seceded from the Union. And the four-year Civil War had begun. Union and Confederate soldiers stumbled upon each other in a small Pennsylvania town called Gettysburg. Three days later, 51,000 American lives were lost. And that was in just one battle that utilized cannons and muskets for weapons. In 2009, Barack Obama became the 44th and the first black president of the United States. He served for eight years without any major scandals. That is, unless you're a Republican and you define a major scandal as wearing a tan suit. Obama's the one who gave the order for the Navy SEALs to get Osama bin Laden, the terrorist responsible for the 9-11 attacks. Republicans hated the fact that a black man served in the Oval Office with dignity and grace for eight years. So much so, with help of the Russian government, they elected the most morally bankrupt failure as a human being as they could find in Donald Trump. The twice impeached, one-term Trump lost an election and then cut loose an angry mob upon the Capitol in an attempt to overthrow that free election. Our government mirrors a Charlie Brown cartoon strip. The Republicans are Lucy holding the football. The Democrats are Charlie Brown running the kick it, hopelessly wishing that Lucy won't pull the ball away at the last second. But we know she will. Republicans don't like the outcome of an election, and now they're taking the football and going home like a spoiled child. It's much more ominous than a Charlie Brown cartoon, though, because in Charlie Brown's world, there isn't a political party that's preparing to cheat in the next election, nor is there an illegitimate rogue Supreme Court dismissing the rights from women with their sights on gays, voting rights, and God knows what else. But what I'd really like to know is, what is the end game? I mean, I understand you wish to flush our democracy down the crapper and install this far-right authoritarian alternational political ideology with Trump or DeSantis, if Trump's in prison for treason, as your dictator. But then what? What comes next? Do you enslave the blacks again? Do you deport all the Mexicans, the Asians, the Jews? Oh, you do know that Jesus was Jewish, right? So what comes next in your Aryan white bread world? Where everyone worships like you, dresses like you, thinks like you, speaks like you, loves who you love and hates who you hate, behaves like you, looks like you, 
you, you, you, you. You know what? Fuck you. It would be wrong to send ketchup packages to POTUS number 45, Mar-a-Lago Club, 1100 South Ocean Boulevard, Palm Beach, Florida, 33480. That would be wrong. So, so wrong. (laughs) Our democracy is in danger. Our service men and women did not fight or serve to have a political party support a fascist government. According to White House visitor logs obtained by the committee, members of Congress present at the White House on December 21st included Congressman Brian Babbitt, Andy Biggs, Matt Gates, Louis Gohmert, Paul Gosar, Andy Harris, Jody Heiss, Jim Jordan, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Scott Perry. They knew. They helped. What do those who serve to protect our democracy feel about what's happening today? Listen to this World War II veteran. People don't realize what they have. They bitch about it. They do. And then nowadays, I am so upset that the things we did and the things we fought for and the boys that died for it, it's all going down the drain. Our country's going to hell in a handbasket. We haven't got the country we had when I was raised. Not at all. Nobody will have the fun I had. Nobody will have the opportunity I had. This is just not the same. That's not what our boys, that's not what they died for. So we came across this deleted post from Representative Jim Jordan, who shared a post from the Washington Examiner, which reads, Ohio AG Dave Yost said his office has not found any evidence of a 10-year-old rape victim in his state who, according to a report cited by President Joe Biden, was six weeks pregnant and traveled to Indiana to receive an abortion. And then Jim Jordan tweeted, another lie, anyone surprised? And then he deleted the tweet, and here's why. A Columbus man has been charged with raping a 10-year-old Ohio girl who then had to travel to Indiana, seeking an abortion after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Rumors of the case garnered national and international attention with some U.S. political leaders referencing it in conversations about abortion bans. Gerson Fientes, 27, was arrested Tuesday, according to Columbus police and court documents. He's been charged with felony rape of a minor under age 13, according to the Franklin County Municipal Court. His first court appearance was on Wednesday. 
Pientes is being held in lieu of $2 million bond. Pientes confessed to police Tuesday that he raped a young girl at least twice, according to testimony from Detective Jeffrey Hun. The girl underwent a medical abortion in Indianapolis on June 30th, Hun testified. DNA from the Indianapolis clinic was being tested against samples from Pientes and the child's siblings. Pientes' next court appearance will be on July 22nd. In a statement Wednesday, Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost said, My heart aches for the pain suffered by this young child. I am grateful for the diligent work of the Columbus Police Department in securing a confession and getting this rapist off the street. Justice must be served, and the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation stands ready to support law enforcement across the state. After Roe v. Wade was overturned, an Ohio law banning abortions as early as six weeks into pregnancy went into effect. Indianapolis-based OBGYN Dr. Caitlin Bernard, that after being contacted by a child abuse doctor in neighboring Ohio, she recently helped a 10-year-old girl have an abortion in Indiana. The young girl was six weeks and three days into the pregnancy. My uterus is not a toaster oven for making white evangelical Pop-Tarts. I am not your bitch, fuck the Congress, fuck the legislature. I am not on earth just so I can be your incubator. AK-47s, assault rifles, and a Glock. All the more protected than a woman screaming stop. And if you want to fight, you got it. Put them up, let's see them hands. 3.9 million women meeting, you don't stand a chance. And this right here's my temple, I have every right to choose. And if you trespass on my body, I have every right to shoot. What's your least favorite thing about life? Republicans. What's next for the Supreme Court? I wrote something and I'm gonna read it. I've read the decision several times now, in full. I have cross-referenced the citations that are included in it. The Supreme Court has used necropolitics to institute Christofascism in America with complete abandon of the ideals of our constitutional republic. And the hits just keep on coming. The House committee investigating the Capitol attacks is examining whether the Secret Service text messages from 5 and 6 January 2021 that were erased around the time of an internal review could be reconstructed, according to sources familiar with the matter. The panel was perturbed that texts between agents on perhaps two of the most important days in the history of the Secret Service, the day before the Capitol attack and the day itself, could be lost in such an abrupt manner. The committee is now examining whether the Department of Homeland Security Inspector General, the watchdog for the Secret Service, which disclosed the eraser in a letter to Congress, can use forensic tools to reconstruct the messages. The texts are potentially significant for the January 6 investigators as the Secret Service played a critical role in preventing Donald Trump from going to the Capitol on that day and, according to the panel, wanted to remove then-Vice President Mike Pence from the complex. January 6th investigators believe the text from that day of the Capitol attacks could shed some light on how the Secret Service wanted to move Donald Trump and Mike Pence, while texts from the day before could provide greater clarity on how security plans were developed. Days before the Capitol attack, the Secret Service assessed that it could not likely guarantee Trump's safety 
if he went to the Capitol on January 6th and, according to a person familiar with the report, conveyed that to senior staff in the White House. On the day of the Capitol attack, according to testimony from former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson, the Secret Service played a major part in stopping Trump from going to the Capitol by driving him back to the West Wing after his speech at the eclipse. The committee believes the Secret Service text messages could provide a record of security plans for January 6th. It's not clear whether texts from Anthony Ornato, a former agent who became White House Deputy Chief of Staff and Trump's lead agent Bobby Engel, were among the messages erased during a device replacement program. But the committee is understood to have asked the DHS Inspector General Joseph Kafari on Friday morning if the text could be reconstructed using forensic tools available to federal law enforcement agents. So the Secret Service is compromised. They literally deleted text messages uh, from the day of January 6th when the January 6th committee asked them to turn them over. Not suspicious at all. Methinks the reason that they deleted those text messages is because it showed their plan to get Mike Pence away from the Capitol so he couldn't certify the 2020 election. A coup is underway in the United States right now, and this is how we fight back. First, a stopgap solution. We need a mass voting movement this November in order to buy ourselves more time. Let's educate, enable, and inspire as many young and working class people as possible to get out to vote. We do that by making registering, knowing who to vote for, and having a plan for election day as easy and convenient as possible. In the meantime, we everyday people need to organize around a concise list of immediate demands. I recommend ending the filibuster so we can codify Roe, repeal the Hyde Amendment, and pass the Freedom to Vote Act. Then impeach, remove, and replace justices who lied to Congress under oath. Doing so addresses the immediate crisis of no exception forced births. It safeguards our 2024 election, and it holds justices accountable. This is an actionable, attainable list of short-term solutions that our government has the power and duty to implement. Our power and duty is to do whatever it takes to vote in what could be our last remotely democratic election, to organize around a shared list of immediate demands, and prepare ourselves in our community for unrelenting, coordinated acts of civil disobedience, or something else entirely, if this coup prevails because we fail to act. I want power. God, I hope you never get it. Look at me when I'm talking to you. You're telling me that my assault doesn't matter. That what happened to me doesn't matter. Women have been assaulted. How can you ignore our pleas? Mr. President, I will vote to confirm Judge Kavanaugh. We have to turn out record numbers. On a nearby building, someone hoisted a Me Too banner. The American dream for too many people is way out of reach. I hope that you will all join us in our fight for the future. Folks, my next guest tonight is a Texan running for U.S. Senate against Ted Cruz. Please welcome Congressman Beto O'Rourke. Yeah! We're here to define who we are. Either we're a country that takes kids from their parents, or we are a country that lives up to our best tradition. This is inhumane. This is cruel. We'd like to say this isn't America. This is America right now. I sent you this book. It's called Climate Change for Beginners. There will be irreversible damage to the planet. What this is, is a war about whether or not people are going to have health care. I grew up where if you work hard, you can make it. The last thing we need in D.C. is people who go there and tell lies. Take the next generation very seriously. So if you don't like what's going on right now, and you shouldn't, I ain't no fortune it won't. Get on the boat. I love you guys.
problem of politicians whipping up mob violence to destroy fair elections is the oldest domestic enemy of constitutional democracy in America. Abraham Lincoln knew it too. In 1837, a racist mob in Alton, Illinois, broke into the offices of an abolitionist newspaper and killed its editor, Elijah Lovejoy. Coming up after the break, we will have the latest recap on the January 6th commission. Stay close. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Anchor has the tools to allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. And best of all, it's totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. For 60 years, supporters of St. Jude has been united around one purpose, that no child should die in the dawn of life. What began as a hospital in Memphis now has a global impact. Today, St. Jude is leading the way the world understands, treats, and defeats childhood cancer. This would not be possible without your support. St. Jude can help children around the world. Consider donating today because your kindness can make a world of difference in a child's life. Well, it happened. Now what am I supposed to do? Shooter's Grill, a restaurant owned by right-wing representative Lauren Bobart of Colorado, is reportedly shutting down because Bobart's landlord will not renew the lease. So Lauren Bobart's infamous open carry restaurant is closing. Shit, that was on my bucket list. Said no one ever. I know I've heard that today. 
Trump presided over a lengthy meeting on December 18, 2020, that moved from the Oval Office then to the residence. According to video testimony, an unhinged group of West Wing outsiders descended on the president to push their plans to fight Biden's win. Details of the meeting described at the various times by witnesses as crazy, contentious, and hot-blooded set the stage for the committee's central theory that Trump knew the truth but purposely and intentionally disregarded it in favor of lawlessness. The marathon battle for then-President Trump's favor lasted for hours, with one side that included retired General Mike Flynn, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, and the CEO from Overstock. White House counsel Pat Cipollone and then White House advisor and lawyer Eric Hirschman and other advisors ran to intervene in the meeting as soon as they were alerted that the president was alone with this group. Flynn and Powell came to the meeting with conspiracy theories and had prepared a draft executive order that would effectively annul the results of the presidential election. According to the testimony from Powell, the president was receptive to their suggestions, especially the plans that challenged the results of the election. That it was going to work, that you were going to be able to get to see the president uh, without an appointment? I had no idea. Uh, in fact, you did get to see the president without an appointment. We did. How much time did you have alone with the president? And I say alone, you had other people with you, but right. from his aides before the crowd came running? Uh, probably no more than 10 or 15 minutes. Was in that. In I bet Pat Cipollone set a new land speed record. I got a call either from Molly or Hirschman that I need to get to the Oval Office. So that was the first point that I had recognized, okay, there was nobody in there from the White House. Mark's gone. What's going on right now? I opened the door and I walked in. I saw General Flynn. I saw Sidney Powell sitting there. I was not happy to see the people in the Oval Office. Well, again, I, I don't think they were providing. Well, first of all, the overstock person, I, I've never met never, never who this guy was. Actually, the first thing I did, I walked in, I looked at him and I said, who are you? And he told me, I don't think, I don't think any of these people were providing the president with good advice. Uh, and so I, I, I didn't understand how they had gotten in. In the short period of time that you had with the president, did uh, uh, he seem receptive to the presentation that you were making? He was very interested in hearing particularly about the FISA finding and the terms of 13848 that apparently nobody else had bothered to inform him of. I was asking, like, you're claiming the Democrats were working with Hugo Chavez, Venezuelans, and whomever else. And at one point, uh, General Flynn took out a diagram that supposedly showed 
IP addresses all over the world and IP, who, was, who was communicating with whom via the machines and some comment about like Nest thermostats being hooked up to the internet. The acrimonious argument with the president being at the center lasted more than six hours according to testimony. Trump's White House advisors knew that Trump had lost the election and had explained this to him several times. The legal outsiders led by Powell and Giuliani expressed fury over how little they felt was being done to pursue their outlandish theories of voter fraud and a stolen election as they played to Trump's refusal to concede. Flynn, Powell, and Giuliani came armed with a plan. Trump could take back the election by issuing an executive order that demanded that the U.S. military seize the voting machines in the states that had cost Trump the election. Powell and Giuliani had already drafted the executive order before they had arrived and presented it to Trump. Testimony from former Attorney General William Barr confirmed that Trump was on board with this plan. In addition to that, Trump offered to give Sidney Powell a job as special counsel to the Department of Justice to investigate non-existent voter fraud, and she was given a security clearance. The meeting got dirty as Trump's growing impatience over losing the election grew and fewer remedies appeared to be available to him. Giuliani testified that the president told his White House attorneys that they were not tough enough and used crass language, specifically calling Cipollone and Hirschman pussies. Pat Cipollone testified that he did not think that anyone in Powell's group was providing the president with good advice. And he told investigators that he didn't understand how they even got into the Oval Office. Cipollone also described Powell's new job as special counsel by calling her unqualified and explained that he vehemently opposed the hiring of Ms. Powell as special counsel, adding, I don't think she should have been appointed to anything. Did you believe that it was going to work, that you were going to be able to get to see the president uh, without an appointment? I had no idea. Uh, in fact, you did get to see the president without an appointment. We did. How much time did you have alone with the president? And I say alone. You had other people with you, but right from his aides before the crowd came running. Uh, probably no more than ten or fifteen minutes. Was in that? In, I bet Pat Cipollone set a new land speed record. I got a call uh, either from Molly or Eric Hirschman that I need to get to the Oval Office. So that was the first point that I had recognized. Okay, there was nobody in there from the White House. Mark's gone. What's going on right now? I opened the door and I walked in. I saw General Flynn. I saw Sidney Powell sitting there. I was not happy to see the people who were in the Oval Office. Explain what? Well, again, I, I don't think they were providing. Well, first of all, the overstock person, I, I've never met period of time that you had with the president, did uh, uh, he seem receptive to the presentation that you were making? He was very interested in hearing particularly about the FISA finding and the terms of 13848 that apparently nobody else had bothered to inform him of. I was asking, like, you claim the Democrats were working with Hugo Chavez, Venezuelans, and whomever else. And at one point, uh, General Flynn took out a diagram 
that supposedly showed IP addresses all over the world and IP, who was who was communicating with whom via the machines and some comment about like Nest thermostats being hooked up to the internet. So it's been reported that during this meeting, Ms. Powell talked about Dominion voting machines and made various election fraud claims that involve foreign countries such as Venezuela, Iran, and China. Is that accurate? Was the meeting tense? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, it was not a casual meeting. Explain. I mean, at times there were people shouting at each other, hurling insults at each other. Um, it wasn't just sort of people sitting around on a couch, like chit-chatting. Do you recall whether he raised to Ms. Powell the fact that she and the campaign had lost all of the 60 cases that they had brought in litigation? Yes, he raised that. And what was the response? I don't remember what she said. I don't think it was a good response. Cipollone and Hirschman and uh, whoever the other guy was showed nothing but contempt and disdain uh, of the president. Yeah, I remember the three of them were really sort of forcefully attacking me verbally. <laughs> um, Eric, Derek, and we were pushing back and we were asking one simple question. As a, as a general matter, where is the evidence? So, what response did you get when you asked Ms. Powell and her colleagues where's the a variety of responses based on my current recollection, including you know, can't believe you would say something like you know things like this, like what do you mean where's the evidence? You should know, yeah, you know, things like that, or you know, a disregard, I would say, a general disregard for the importance of actually backing up what you say with facts. And, you know, then there was discussion of, well, you know, we don't have it now, but we will have it or whatever. I mean, if, if it had been me sitting in his chair, I would have fired all of them that night and had them escorted out of the building. But Deborah and I both challenged what she was saying. And she says, well, the judges are corrupt. And I was like, everyone? Every single case that you've done in the country you guys lost, every one of them is corrupt, even the ones we appointed. And I'm being nice. I was much more harsh to her. So one of the other things that's been reported that was said during this meeting was that President Trump told White House lawyers, Mr. Hirschman and Mr. Cipollone, that they weren't offering him any solutions, but Ms. Powell and others were. So why not try uh, what Ms. Powell and others were proposing? Do you remember anything along those lines being said by President Trump? I do. That sounds right. I think that it got to the point where the screaming was completely, completely out there. I mean, you got people walk in, it was late at night, it had been a long day. And what they were proposing, I thought was nuts. I'm going I'm to categorically describe it as, you guys are not tough enough. Or maybe I put it another way, you're a bunch of pussies. Excuse the expression, but that, that's... I. I'm almost certain the word was used. Flynn screamed at me that I was a quitter and everything. Kept on standing up and turning around and screaming at me. And at a certain point, I had it with him. So I yelled back. I had to come over or sit your effing ass back down. The president and the White House team went 
upstairs to the residence, but to the um, uh, public part of the residence, you know, the big, the big parlor where you can have meetings in the conference room. Yellow Oval. They call that the Yellow Oval? Yes, exactly. The Yellow Oval office. I always called it the upper. Um, and I'm not exactly sure where the Sydney group went. I think maybe the Roosevelt room. And I stayed in the cabinet room, which is kind of cool. I really like that. All, my, all by myself. At the end of the day, we landed where we started the meeting, at least from a structural standpoint, which was Sidney Powell was fighting. Mike Flynn was fighting. They were looking for avenues that would enable, that would result in President Trump remaining. This chaotic meeting ultimately descended into screaming and even threats of physical violence between the two groups vying for Trump's attention. Hirschman testified that the screaming was completely out there, and he added, what they were proposing I thought was completely nuts. Cipollone explained his reaction to the outlandish plane being proposed by Powell and others to have the federal government seize voting machines. That's a terrible idea for the country. That's not how we do things in the United States, Cipollone testified. Cipollone explained that he continued to ask the outside legal team to provide evidence for their claims, but never received any. There was a real question in my mind and a real concern, particularly after the attorney general had reached the conclusion that there wasn't sufficient evidence of fraud to change the outcome of the election. When other people kept suggesting there was, the answer was, what is it? And at some point, you have to put up or shut up, said Cipollone. The meeting went on past midnight and spread across several rooms in the White House before arriving back where it began in the Oval Office. When the meeting concluded, Rudy Giuliani was escorted off the White House grounds to make sure he did not wander back. Casey Hutchinson documented Giuliani's departure in a series of texts that included the following statement. The West Wing is unhinged. Just before the committee dove into the details of this salacious Oval Office meeting on the 18th, they played a video montage of various Trump advisors testifying that they had most definitely instructed then-President Trump that Biden had legally won the election. What was shown was the series of White House officials confirming that Donald Trump knew very well that he had lost. Pat Cipollone had also explained to Trump that there was no evidence of election fraud and that it was time to concede. I want to start by asking if you agree, Mr. Cipollone, with the conclusions of Matt Morgan and Bill Barr, of all of the individuals who evaluate those claims, that there is no evidence of election fraud sufficient to undermine the outcome in particular state. Yes, I agree with that. And Mr. Cipollone also specifically testified that he believed that Donald Trump should have conceded the election. Did you believe, in, Mr. Cipollone, that the president should concede once you made the determination based on the investigations that you credited DOJ did and did, did you, in your mind, form a belief that the president should concede the election loss uh, at a certain point after the election? Well, again, uh, I was the White House counsel. Some of those decisions are political, so to the extent that but, but if your question is that I believe he should concede the election at a point in time, yes, I did. I, I believe um, Leader McConnell went on to the floor of the Senate, I believe, in mid-December, and basically said, you know, the process is done. You know, that, that would be in line with my thinking on these things. 
President Trump is a 76-year-old man. He's not an impressionable child, said Committee Vice Chair Representative Liz Cheney in response to those who claim that Trump was unknowingly influenced by the wrong people. Just like everyone else in our country, he's responsible for his own actions and his own choices. Following this pivotal meeting in the Oval, Trump and his outliner allies turned their efforts towards summoning a mob of his supporters to Washington to protest the certification of the election. On December 19th, Donald Trump issued a tweet to ignite his base in a call of action saying, Big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there. We'll be wild. Supporters responded immediately. Women for America First, a pro-Trump organizing group, had previously applied for a rally permit for January 22nd and 23rd in Washington, D.C., several days after Joe Biden was to be inaugurated. But in the hours after the tweet, they moved their permit to January 6th, two weeks before. This rescheduling created the rally where Trump would eventually speak. The next day, Ali Alexander, leader of the Stop the Steal organization and a key mobilizer of Trump supporters, registered wildprotest.com, named after Trump's tweet. Wildprotest.com provided comprehensive information about numerous newly organized protest events in Washington. It included event times, places, speakers, and details on transportation to Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, other key Trump supporters, including far-right media personalities, began promoting the wild protest on January 6th. It's Saturday, December 19th. The year is 2020. And one of the most historic events in American history has just taken place. President Trump, in the early morning hours today, tweeted that he wants the American people to march on Washington, D.C. on January 6th, 2021. And now Donald Trump is calling on his supporters to descend on Washington, D.C., January 6th. He is now calling on we, the people, to take action and to show our numbers. We're going to only be saved by millions of Americans moving to Washington, occupying the entire area, if, if necessary, storming right into the Capitol. You know, there, we, we know the rules of engagement. If you have enough people, you can push down any kind of a fence or a wall. This could be Trump's last stand. And it's a time when he has specifically called on his supporters to arrive in D.C. Relying on testimony from Trump aides, right-wing media commentators, and militia members, the committee next demonstrated how Trump's series of public statements and the specific tweet led his supporters to believe the election had actually been stolen. Right-wing advocates, shock jocks, and paramilitary leaders made alarming references to a second civil war and explained that Trump's followers would be prepared to use violence to overthrow the election results. Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, other key Trump supporters, including far-right media personalities, began promoting the wild protest on January 6th. It's Saturday, December 19th, the year is 2020, and one of the most historic events in American history has just taken place. President Trump, in the early morning hours today, tweeted that he wants the American people to march 
on Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021. And now Donald Trump is calling on his supporters to descend on Washington, D.C. January 6th. He is now calling on we the people to take action and to show our numbers. We're going to only be saved by millions of Americans moving to Washington, occupying the entire area, if if necessary, storming right into the Capitol. You know, there we, we know the rules of engagement. If you have enough people, you can push down any kind of a fence or a wall. This could be Trump's last stand. And it's a time when he has specifically called on his supporters to arrive in D.C. That's something that may actually be the big push. Trump supporters need to say, this is it. It's now or never. You better understand something, son. You better understand something. Red wave, bitch. Red wave. This is going to be a red wedding going down January 6th. On that day, Trump says, show up for a protest. It's going to be wild. And based on what we've already seen from the previous events, I think Trump is absolutely correct. Motherfucker, you better look outside. <laughs> you better look out January 6th. Kick that fucking door open. Look down the street. There's going to be a million plus geeked up armed Americans. <laughs> the time for games is over. The time for action is now. Where were you when history called? Where were you when you and your children's destiny and future was The January 6th committee also linked Trump allies Roger Stone and Michael Flynn to the prominent leaders of the Oath Keepers paramilitary group and revealed encrypted messages and chats. A text was shown from Stop the Steal organizer Ally Alexander that showed that there was a plan in place for Trump to call his supporters to descend on the Capitol. Additionally, documents preserved by the National Archives that showed the various versions of Trump's speech during his rally at the eclipse proved that the last-minute addition was made to the speech where Trump called his followers to march on the U.S. Capitol. After her January 2nd call with Mr. Meadows, Katrina Pearson sent an email to fellow rally organizers. She wrote, POTUS expectations are to have something intimate at the ellipse and call on everyone to march to the Capitol. President's own documents suggest that the president had decided to call on his supporters to go to the Capitol on January 6th, but that he chose not to widely announce it until his speech on the ellipse that morning. The committee has obtained this draft, updated, uh, uh, undated tweet from the National Archives. It includes a stamp stating, President has seen. The draft tweet reads, I will be making a big speech at 10 a.m. on January 6th at the Ellipse, south of the White House. Please arrive early. Massive crowds expected. March to the Capitol after. Stop the steal. Although this tweet was never sent, rally organizers were discussing and preparing for the march to the Capitol in the days leading up to January 6th. The special committee also played audio testimony of a former employee at Twitter who had been monitoring the calls for violence on January 6th and who had warned the social media platform about what was to come. Despite all the numerous warnings, nothing was done to give a heightened alert to law enforcement agencies who were also monitoring the post. What was your your gut feeling on the night of January 5th? I believe I sent a Slack message to someone that said something along the lines of, when people are shooting each other tomorrow, I will try and rest in the knowledge that we tried. 
Um, and so I went to, I don't know that I slept that night, to be honest with you. Um, I, I was on pins and needles, um, because again, for, for months I had been begging and anticipating and attempting to raise the reality that if nothing, if we made no intervention into what I saw occurring, people were going to die. Um, and on January 5th, I realized no intervention was coming. Uh, no, there, and even as, as hard as I had tried to create one uh, or implement one, there was nothing and we were we were at the whims um, and the mercy of a violent crowd that was locked and loaded. And just for the record, this was content that was echoing statements by the former president, but also Proud Boys um, and other um, known violent extremist groups. Yeah. The bottom line of the most recent January 6th committee's hearing was made from the start when Liz Cheney emphasized the culpability of Donald Trump and dismissed the major defense being presented on his behalf. Donald Trump cannot escape responsibility by being willfully blind is the perfect summation that will perhaps be made to a jury one day. This January 6th committee has certainly provided more than enough proof of intent and conspiracy for Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice to proceed with charging Donald Trump and his co-conspirators. The focus now seems to be on driving home the point that some action must be taken and that the majority of America demands it. questions that keeps being asked on cable news that is driving me fucking crazy, particularly directed at legal analysts, which is, can the Department of Justice possibly hold a former, twice impeached president accountable for his crimes? I mean, what will it do to the country? And to this, I have one answer, right? And I am not throwing any type of shade at my legal analyst friends because they have a different mindset. I'm just a political analyst. And so here is my mindset. What fucking damage do you think would be done to the country that hasn't already happened yet if Donald Trump was held accountable? Do you think that his minions would storm the Capitol? Oh, that's right, they already fucking did that. Do you think that they would try and threaten or attempt to murder um, members of Congress or the Supreme Court? Oh, that's right, they've already done that too. What is it that we think that accountability for rich white men who do wrong by this country, who do wrong by its citizens, means exactly? It means that maybe, unlike with the Confederacy and fucking Robert E. Lee, maybe they won't erect marble statues to Donald Trump's ass in 20, 30, 40, 50 years, right? That maybe, unlike the Jefferson Davis Highway that I used to drive on in Virginia, that we wouldn't celebrate those that tried to destroy our country. That instead, we would hold them accountable and signal to those that seek to come in their path that you too will meet the same fate. Do you think that Donald Trump would have even been thought of in the American political psyche if in fact Richard Nixon hadn't have been pardoned? Do you think that if we had held George H. Bush accountable for the Iran Contra, do you think that, oh, that George W. Bush would have just gotten a fucking pass into the presidency like he was entering into a new fraternity? 
No, you see, we are here because of a series of mistakes that were made on behalf of what about the American people? The American people would love to know and believe that those that are in power are held to the same level of accountability and rule of law that they are. So miss me with the bullshit when it comes to, oh, the country can't take much more. What the country can't take is an ineffectual fucking Department of Justice and a Democratic Party that isn't willing to put their fucking foot on the gas as it pertains to telling the American people the truth about the Republican Party, what they want and what they vision for America. Absent accountability, we have no democracy. End, period, finished. Humans are duteous which means that when they develop in the womb, the anus forms before any other opening, which basically means at one point, you were nothing but an asshole. Speaking of global warming, where is we need some global warming? It's freezing. Some people never develop beyond that stage. This is Johnny Benson, and that's the podcast. Until next week, keep smiling. When you're smiling, when you're smiling, the whole world smiles with you. When you're laughing, Oh, when you're laughing The sun comes shining through But when you're crying You bring on the rain So stop your sighing happy again keep on smiling cause when you're smiling the whole world smiles with you Be happy again Keep on smiling Cause when you're smiling 
the 